Do turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11. Christianity is ranked as being the world's largest religion with about approximately 2 billion adherents. That is to say, 33% of the world's population is considered to be Christian. Apparently, about 83 million Bibles are distributed globally each year. There are approximately 6 million books about Christianity in print today. And an average of 171,000 Christians worldwide are martyred for their faith every year. There is no doubt that Christianity is a global phenomenon. And it is, as we read these chapters of Acts, we find where that phenomena began, really, where it all began. Indeed, what we've read this evening tells us about the occasion when Christians were first called Christians. You don't get any earlier than that, right to the very beginning of the story. And the book of Acts, as we have seen, is being driven by a prediction of Jesus right at the very beginning. That prediction of Jesus is that his disciples will be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from the very beginning of the book of Acts, some of the controlling material behind it is material from the book of Isaiah the prophet. Over and over again, there are either allusions to or quotations from or language reflective of the language of Isaiah the prophet in the Old Testament. And out of the whole of Isaiah, the controlling vision that Isaiah is given, right at the very beginning of his book, which in many ways sets the tone for the rest of that great prophetic utterance, is in Isaiah chapter 2. In that prophetic prediction, Isaiah looks forward to a latter-day city temple, Zion, it's sometimes called. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, whenever you see Zion, don't just think Jerusalem geographically, but think Zion in terms of that community of God's people that transcends space and time and history. It is the people of God in its fullness and usually associated with the final latter-day temple where God is worshipped. And alongside this view of this final temple, there is a view of the ingathering of the nations to that. So in Isaiah 2, for example, we read that it will come to pass in the latter days, that's the key phrase, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord being the temple, that mountain of Zion will rise, will be established as the highest of all the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What the book of Acts is saying is that this is fulfilled in this lifetime of these apostles. This word has gone out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now we're going to discover to the ends of the earth. Later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah predicted what that would mean, what that would involve, where people who were not Jews, people who were not Israelites by natural descent, would nonetheless become ministering priests 
in that latter day temple of the Lord. Uh, let me read from Isaiah chapter 56. The foreigners will, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, that is to minister as priests to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their offerings and sacrifices shall be acceptable on my altar. For my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus quotes that in his interaction with the Pharisees. That God had said that his house, the house of God, the temple of God, would be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he goes on to say, Isaiah, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So here is Isaiah's and God's vision through Isaiah of this great future. God is going to build a temple. We know how Peter understood that promise. He tells us that in his book, one of his letters. He tells us that it is a spiritual temple made up of people and we are living stones being built into this temple in the Lord. And we are gathered, people who were in darkness, people who were pagans are gathered into this great temple. And it starts, it starts its fulfillment here in the lifetime of the apostles. Now if you were to ask Isaiah, if you were, we were able to introduce him to you this evening and, and interview him, and we asked him, what, what did you imagine these people, these foreigners, these outcasts, these Gentiles, what did you imagine them becoming? He would have said to you, well, I imagine them becoming Israelites. I imagine that they will, they will probably meet all the requirements of becoming Jews like Rahab and Ruth and Uriah did in the Old Testament narrative. Here in the book of Acts, it is emphasized that, in fact, these prophecies are being fulfilled. Already you've seen some of the outcasts. A eunuch has been converted and has been brought to Christ. People from the dispersion on the day of Pentecost, from all over the then known world, the, the regions that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2 resemble the regions that are mentioned on the day of Babel. And there's a reversal of Babel as people begin to speak in the languages of the people of the world and they are understood as they speak in those languages about the wonderful works of God. The scattered are being gathered. The outcasts are being gathered. And now the foreigners, the, the nations, the goyim, the, the enemies of God, the Gentiles, well, most of us, we are being gathered too. And what chapter 10 taught and the first part of chapter 11 explained more fully is that these outcasts, foreigners, strangers being brought into this new Israel don't have to adopt the tags, the nationalistic tags of the old Israel. We don't have to be circumcised, good news for some of us, at least half of us. We don't have to be circumcised, we don't have to move geographically to Jerusalem. We don't have to adopt the food laws. All we need to do is move to Jesus. Move to Jesus and we become part of the new Israel of God. Because in moving to Jesus we are cleansed. Chapter 11 again, the early part teaches this. 
that those who accept Jesus are ceremonially clean already. You are clean through the word that I spoke to you, Jesus said to his disciples. Ceremonially clean. Moving to Jesus makes you clean enough to become part of the new covenant people of God. And all of this great, uh, wonderful fulfillment is clinched in the home of a man called Cornelius as there is a repeat of the day of Pentecost. The Spirit falls, does the same kind of things as at the beginning, but this time the Spirit falls on Gentiles, thus sealing God's promise to draw to himself a people from the world. The nations are coming to the Lord. In fact, their conclusion at the end of chapter 11, verse 18, rather, the end of that last section is that the church of Jerusalem, they all glorified God and said, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So that's where we are as we come to this section this evening, because here as we move into this next section, we have the creation of the first Gentile Jewish church, a church in Antioch. And as we read the story, we read that this church came about uh, by, through a strong hand, a great heart, and a new name. A, strong, a strong hand, a great heart, and a new name. First of all, a strong hand. Look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is Luke's summary of a movement into uncharted territory for this fledgling new Israel. Already we've seen in Acts 2, many people from the dispersion have become Christians. And now God is bringing these Gentiles into the Israel of God, his church. As believers were scattered by the persecution, we were told, they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They didn't need classes on how to evangelize or witness. There was no pro forma method by which you could communicate. There was no guilting the congregation because they weren't witnessing enough. There was no heavy-handed uh, discipling so that believers were sitting there cringing because they hadn't witnessed to ten people before they had breakfast every morning. None of that. As the believers went, and they were asked the question, what are you doing here? They said, we were driven out of Jerusalem because of our allegiance to King Jesus. That was enough to get conversations going. And they gossiped the gospel. And now it's come to Antioch, the chief metropolis of Syria, the third city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. Over half a million people, a large city for those days. And we're told that the hand of the Lord was on them. This phrase is only used three times in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament phrase. It's only used three times in the, the, the New Testament, all of them by Luke and all of them in Acts. And it's a metaphor, you understand. I mean, God is invisible and God is intangible. God is spirit, Jesus said. So God doesn't have hands. The only member of the Godhead who has hands is Jesus who became incarnate. He has hands and feet and a wounded side and a thorn-pierced brow and eyes into which you will one day look if you're a believer. But God is spirit. So God doesn't have hands. And yet in the Bible, this metaphor is regularly used of God. That God is a hand. God can do things. God can achieve things. He can accomplish things. He can make things. He can create, change things. 
God has power to touch, hold, push, move things according to his will and his purpose. It stresses God at work. It stresses the sovereignty of God at work. God, when he moves his hand, God accomplishes what he wants to do with his mighty hand. God turns hearts with his hand. He changes people's mind with his hand. He changes history by his powerful hand. The strong hand of God at work in the world. And how is the strong hand of God at work manifested here in Antioch? Well, it's manifested, we're told, in that a great number turned to the Lord. Three times in this brief passage, Luke calls attention to the large number of converts in verse 21, 24, 26. This is a theme that's been going on throughout Acts as people are added to the church or as the church is multiplied or as the church increases in number. It's almost like we're turning the clock back to creation, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But this is a new creation that has occurred. Adam and Eve are told to go out, out and multiply and increase in number and fill the earth. And here it's happening in this new creation. God is multiplying the people of God. There's an addition. There's a multiplication. There's a, an increase as God brings into this new creation and this new Israel the people that he's calling to himself. And he turns their hearts so that they trust him. He turns their hearts so that they believe him. You know, God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent to how many people experience his grace. You listen to the language of the Lord Jesus, which Luke records back in Luke chapter 13. The Lord Jesus, as he looks at Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets, persecute those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered you into my bosom like a hen gathers her brood, and you were not willing? God is not indifferent to those who turn their back on him, to those who rebel against him. God is not indifferent to those who walk past week by week and never enter the door of a church or open their lips to praise his name. God is not indifferent to that. Later on, Jesus tells a story. You remember the gospel banquet. He says the gospel is like a great party thrown by God. And he sends out the messengers. He sends it to those who you would expect to come. The family members. The people, you know, who are at the head of any social list in terms of your home. It goes to them first. And one by one, all of those people make excuses why they cannot come. They're bad excuses, but they're excuses nonetheless as to why they can't come. And so the master sends out others. Go quickly, he says, out and find people. Find the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and you bring them in. And the servants come back and they say, well, we did what you got. We found lots of poor and crippled and blind and lame, and they're here, but there's still room. And the master says, we'll go out into the highways and the hedges and find the people who are there and compel them to come in, that my house may be full. God has thrown a party. God is calling people to himself. The people who are going to be there may not be the expected people. They're the people whom God has turned to himself. You see, the, the hand of God was active in Antioch. These are the unexpected people, a pagan city with absolutely no godliness at all. God is turning the hearts of these people to himself. The hand of God, a strong hand. 
God sent not only a strong hand to Antioch, he sent a great heart there. Because we read in verses 22 to 24 about a man, an individual, the report of what was going on in Antioch comes to the church in Jerusalem. They hear the reports. This happens several times in the book of Acts, and they go and check them out. They sent uh, Peter and John to Samaria to make sure that what was happening in Samaria, that broken off fragment of old Israel, the northern ten tribes, had to be investigated. Was it a work of God or not? It was, and the Spirit falls, and they are included in this new movement, this new creation, this new Israel. The apostles, of course, are the founding fathers of this new Israel, the twelve of them. That's why it's so important in Acts that the place of Judas is filled by Matthias. They're also the foundation of the new temple. You go to the very end of the Bible, you find there that the foundation of the temple city, Zion, the names of the twelve apostles are there. The foundation of the church is there. The church is built on their message. Jesus says in John 17 that all of us come to believe in him through their message, the message of the apostles. So this time they send not one of the apostles, but a delegate, a man called Barnabas. Barnabas was a Cypriot, which means he comes from Cyprus in the, in the Mediterranean and he belonged to the Jewish dispersion there. He understood the Gentile world. He lived in that world. He was a man of international connections. He knew how to move easily in the wider world. And in Jerusalem, he was such a character that he was known by a nickname. He was called Mr. Encouragement. He is Mr. Encouragement. Come into church. We need people like that in churches, don't we? Mr. Encouragement. Barnabas. He was full of grace and faith and the Holy Spirit, we're told. Everything he had was a work of the Holy Spirit. You don't get character like that on your own. You don't stand up in the morning and kind of draw yourself together and hold in your tummy and say, today I'm going to be full of grace and encouragement to people and make yourself do it. You can't do that. The Holy Spirit works that into your character and works that into your life. He was full of grace because of the Holy Spirit. And he was the kind of man who had eyes for people that everybody else was suspicious of. He, had, he was the man who took the initiative in reaching out towards this converted anti-Christian who had persecuted the church of God. He's the one who reached out to Saul of Tarsus after his conversion and brought him alongside and, and encouraged him as he got into Scripture, as he started to teach the Bible. It was Barnabas who brought Saul of Tarsus to Jerusalem and introduced him to the apostles who are a bit edgy. I would imagine they're a bit scared because the last thing they saw of Saul, he's persecuting the church of God, and they remembered he was there when Stephen the martyr was killed. Barnabas was the guy that brought them together. Mr. Encouragement. He had a great heart. He believed that God could work in unlikely places. He was the man to send to Antioch, and so this great heart visits Antioch, and he's overjoyed. He sees the grace of God at work in these people's lives. He's overjoyed to see this work of grace. Because no heart filled with the Holy Spirit can fail to be overjoyed at seeing the work of God in someone else's life. No heart filled with the Holy Spirit can fail to be absolutely full of pleasure at what God is doing when God saves a man or a woman or a child and brings them into his kingdom. You can't be indifferent to that. You can't just stuff that off as being, well, this happens. This is something that grips the heart of anybody who has any sense of who God is and what God's heart is like. This man knew the heart of God. He was overjoyed. And as he came to this new church, he saw the church needed 
A couple of things. They needed encouragement. He was a great encourager. He understood, you see, that becoming a Christian is not only that God's purpose to make more disciples, but also God's purpose was to make mature disciples. Not only make them, but mature them. And that's why he comes with encouragement. Here's what he said, or here's what he did, we're told. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He understood it wasn't enough just to bring someone to Jesus, introduce them to Jesus. He understood those people had to go on with Jesus. They had to grow in Jesus. He knew perfectly well that every day brings for the Christian fresh crises, raises fresh doubts, creates more tensions, stirs up more fears, precipitates more conflicts. Every day does this in the life of the Christian. And so every day we need to be encouraged to go on, to, to, to keep, keep going on. A friend of mine used to sign his, his letters to me uh, after he'd written to me, Alistair Begg, some of you may know his name, he used to uh, finish his letters writing to me and say, keep keeping on. Keep keeping on. We all need that. We need that encouragement day to day, moment to moment. But not only did he realize that they needed encouragement, they needed perseverance. But secondly, they needed instruction. That's interesting, isn't it? Here were brand new Christians living in a very hostile pagan environment, much more pagan than Philadelphia is. An environment that was really hostile to the things of God. And what he decided that these people needed was not therapy. They didn't need therapy. They didn't need any of that stuff. They needed teaching. They needed instruction. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you'll find that nowhere does anybody think anybody needs therapy. The Christian answer to your problems is to get some teaching into your head so that when things are going on in your life you know how to think because how you think will determine how you feel and how you react and what you do they needed teaching and he knew the man problem was he didn't know where the man was so he had to go looking for him the language suggests that it was a big search that he had to go on he had to actually hunt down this man and this man of course was Saul Stories already told us that Saul had increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when Barnabas is reporting what Saul had been up to, he says, you know, this man saw the Lord. He saw the Lord and he's been teaching, preaching from the, from the moment he became a Christian. He's been spilling out his heart, showing them from the Scriptures, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the man for this crossover church in Antioch which has brought together converted Jews and converted Gentiles and into one Israel, one new creation. Paul is the man. So Barnabas brings Paul. It takes a great heart to build a church, a great heart to build a church. And it's at Antioch that the church is given a new name. Look at verses 25-26. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, after a while, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want you to notice what led to them being called Christians. What led to them being called Christian, Christians is they had a year's teaching in which all their questions were being sorted out, in which the way they thought about God was being sorted out, in which their understanding of Jesus was being sorted out, in which their gra grip on salvation, what it meant, was being sorted 
out. Over that year, those people began to be different, distinctive. The way they thought, the way they reacted to the world, the way they explained themselves, the way they interpreted their experience, the way they understood the world and their relationship to the world, all of those things began to be changed over that year. They became different from people around. Their view of the world became different from those around them. They had hope where people around them had no hope. What changed those people was the Word of God changed them. They thought differently from the world. And the world said, these people belong in a category that we don't have any other category for. Except somehow or other, as they listened to these people and observed these people and heard what these people had to say, they realized the whole focus of their lives was around the Messiah. The Messiah. These people were Jews. But no, they weren't Jews. But they were close to being Jews. They talked about the Messiah all the time. They were being instructed in the Old Testament Scriptures. But they weren't Jews. They were a third thing. They weren't pagans. They weren't Jews. But they were more like Jews than they were like pagans. What were they? And it was people observing them that came up with this new word. Christianoi. Diminutive and plural. They were the little messianic ones. The little messianic ones. Like children following the Messiah. Like people with just a living, loving, vibrant affection for the Messiah. Here in Gentile territory, these Gentile converts were not just another branch of the Christian movement. They were the new creation of God. They were the new Israel of God. There was one people of God. They named the Messiah's name. They saw their roots now in Judaism going back to Abraham and Adam. They saw that that was their history and they adopted that history as their own. But they saw themselves with a new present and a new future. They had found the Messiah. All that had been promised had come true. In Christ Jesus, God's new creation had begun. They'd been grounded in the, uh, in the Word of God. So, these little messianic ones were still without a New Testament interpretation. They had Paul teaching them, and from time to time, groups of prophets came to visit with them. These prophets would apply the Word of God to their lives. In those days, these prophets, alongside the apostles, formed the core and the foundation of the church. In fact, we're told that by Paul in himself in Ephesians 2 that the church is built, the household of God, the temple of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And on that foundation, the whole structure grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we don't have apostles and prophets like this today. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. Whatever the word is you use here. That's the end the apostles and prophets are the foundation on which the church 
is built. In fact, here's how Paul puts it again in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, uh, you can perceive an insight into the mystery of Christ which was made known to the sons of men, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been made known to you by his holy prophets and apostles. So we have their ministry today. We, there are no apostles and prophets because, frankly, we don't need them. We have access to their teaching. It's all here. This is the prophetic word. We have a more sure word of prophecy. This is the perfect law of liberty. This is the more sure word of prophecy. This is the apostolic message through which people become Christians today. We don't need anybody else to add to this. The only prophetic ministry today is the preaching ministry that takes this word and proclaims it to the church. A more sure word of prophecy. And how different it was in those days when a group of people come from the church in Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. Even that is a miracle. Here is this people, a mixed community here in Antioch of Gentiles as well as Jews, and they're called by the same name as the church in Jerusalem. The word for church is used in the Greek Old Testament for Israel, the assembly of Israel. And here the same word is now used of this new community of faith here in Antioch, indicating equality of, of uh, status and significance. The assembly of Israel is now the church of Christ. It's the new Israel of God. A man named Agabus comes among a group of others who come prophesying a famine in Jerusalem. And immediately we are introduced to the generosity of this church as it responds to what it hears of need, responds to that. I want you to notice, by the way, where they're called Christians. They're called Christians before they act like Christians. Before the famine, before the generosity, before the social action, before the generous giving, they're called Christians and known for that, first of all, because of their relationship to the Messiah and their understanding of who the Messiah is, flowing from that, and then faced with a need, they then respond generously to the need of their friends in Jerusalem. And you know, it was one of the great tragedies in the Western world, especially, I think, in Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, when the church started to deny the fundamentals of biblical religion in favor of a purely humanitarian enterprise. Many of the churches in the UK, which today are uh, designer apartment buildings or furniture warehouses or carpet warehouses, or frankly just standing there, or one beautiful building in Glasgow that I know, which is a nightclub. The reason they're empty today is that they decided that the Christian message is no longer about the supernatural grace of God in Christ Jesus dealing with sin, through the burial and resurrection of Christ. They decided it's all about humanitarian enterprise. Killed the church. Evangelicals in the U.S., some of them, need to learn that lesson. And if that becomes the focus, if that becomes the emphasis, if that becomes the priority, they're going to kill the church here. This church was a church full of people that actually believed the Bible. They believed in the blood atonement of Christ. They believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They believed that people were totally lost without Him. They believed the need of the new birth. They believed in the sovereignty of God, and they responded to needs with generous kindness. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be.
If you know the grace of God in Christ, you can't help but show kindness and generosity to those who are in need. Well, as we come to the end of this, let me just say this. If you were to go back to this little section and ask yourself the question, what does a Christian look like? This little section suggests this. Just running your eye down the passage, it means being turned, your heart being turned towards God. And towards God, not just generally, but towards God specifically through Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. Heart turned towards God in Christ. It means being an encourager. I think like Mr. Encouragement, Barnabas. Being an encourager, encouraging one another on towards love and good works. Hebrews says we are to encourage each other daily, reminding each other daily that, that this is a race we must run, this is a, a track we must pursue, this is a goal that we must aim for so that we don't fall behind and lose the place. It's a church with encouragers, a church that learns from the Scriptures, that burrows into the Bible, that burrows into the Scriptures, a church that reaches to the unchurched and the unreached people, a church that believes in giving and receiving gifts to those in need in Jesus' name. That's what a Christian is. That's what a church is. By the grace of God, that's what we are. All to the glory of God. It seems to me that one of the things we need to remember is that salvation is an absolutely free gift. It's a free offer and a free gift, and we cannot pay God back. There is nothing that we can do for God. I was talking to some students earlier uh, this week or on Friday afternoon and we're talking about what we do in our daily lives. We cannot, we, we cannot do good works for God. Our good works are not for God. Our good works are for our neighbor. They're for our neighbor. There's nothing we can do that can make God happier with us or give Him greater pleasure in us. Why? Because his happiness in us and his pleasure in us is based on the absolute total obedience of the Lord Jesus for us. He, he can't be any more obedient than he was. He can't be any more wonderful than he is. He cannot be more beloved than he is to God. And we are where? We are in Christ. Our good works are not for us. Our good works are for our brother, our neighbor, and our enemy. And in a moment, I'll send you out to do those in this week that we've walked into. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have a church on earth. We thank you that you're building your church today as you did back then. Thank you that we're part of this new creation, this new thing that you're doing in the world. Come to us, we pray, as individuals. Give us a heart for you, a heart for your word. And make us, we pray, those who every day cry out, to the one who is our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Help us to live today, every day, as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and was coming again tomorrow. To the praise of your glory. Amen.